When we're tracking interoceptive awareness, Lisa, I think the wonderful thing about this for us is we're playing to the strengths of what our medicine tends to do, which is look more in depth at, at someone's body, their relationship with their own body and their own health. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Science doesn't train in answers. It seeks helpful questions. It's not designed to create certainty. It's a tool to work with the uncertain nature of our world. Science doesn't prove anything. It works by disproving. Karl Popper came up with the falsification principle as a way to separate science from non-science. That for a theory to be scientific, it must be able to be tested and proven false. Hear people talking about theories as if they're facts, but mostly when you hear about theories, you're actually hearing about a hypothesis. Theories are ideas that have gone through rigorous testing and seem to be true, but there is no truth in science because you might be mistaken, or what appears to be true is only so at a particular scale. Theories, on the other hand, have some backing. Hypotheses, on the other hand, are ideas that are untested. They might be true, they might be false. So, conspiracy theories, they're not theories. They're conspiracy hypotheses. You'll hear the word theory tagged on to many things to science them up a bit. But that's scientism, not science. We talk about the theory of the five phases in our work. We take it as a kind of a truth. The way energy resonates through time and space, you might even see it as a law of nature. But I found that this leads me into too many situations where I'm trying to cram reality into my ideas of how the world works. That has a limited utility. I find it helpful to think about the five phases or the six chi or whatever something I've read in a book on medicine as a working model. It's meant to be explored, questioned, put to the test, and then updated. I rarely think about diagnosis these days. I think more about hypotheses, look at a patient's constellation of problems and resources, and then sift out a hypothesis that, when tested with the treatment, the results should speak for themselves. Often, the information we get from doing a treatment is inconclusive, and when that happens, we need to consider if our thinking about the problem is correct or if the treatment was correct, or well-executed, meaning it was specific enough to give us a clear signal. How do we know, and how do we know that we know? Are we taking someone's word for it? Are we doing what a teacher told us was correct? Are we mashing together some thoughts from a yoga class, some ideas about functional medicine, and then tossing in our beliefs about how we think the world works? Just how do you navigate uncertainty in a tangled and ever-evolving world? Medicine, as you probably already know, is part science, part art. Science and art, they're not opposites, nor are they antagonistic to each other. These are two ways of sensing and understanding, complementary as an inhale and an exhale. Feeling, thinking, sensing, intuiting, Perceiving, judging, these are all ways we have of connecting and interacting with our world. 
And we use all of this in our work as practitioners. Humans are complex, interactive systems, and our Western mind is exceedingly well-trained to break holes down into parts, which can give us a sense of understanding as parts are simpler to understand. But what we lose in the process is an appreciation for the relationship between the parts that gives rise to the dynamic unity of the whole. In today's panel discussion with Lisa Taylor Swanson, Nick Lowe, and Elizabeth Osgood Campbell, we explore interoceptivity, how we make meaning of sensation and what that means in the therapeutic context. And beyond that, how we can track and utilize our internal sensing in deeper scientific research ways that allows us to better understand how internal states affect our work and how we can artfully attend to our interoceptive experience in ways that bring us more present to our patients, ourselves, and the unfolding moment. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. 
This season and every season, trust Mei Wei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I always enjoy my conversations with Lisa. She's got an eye for catching cutting-edge research methodologies and a deep love for the medicine that we practice. Today, she's brought along a couple of friends. I thoroughly enjoy the different perspectives that enjoyed from this conversation, and I suspect you will as well. Let's get into this. Hey, friends, I've got a group discussion today. Got Lisa Taylor Swanson, an old classmate of mine, Elizabeth Osgood Campbell, and Nick Lowe. These three are working on a little thing you might have heard about this. I've heard about it, but I don't know much about it. Interoceptive awareness. Well, I'm telling you, anytime I hear the word awareness and I think about medicine and healing and, and the work we do, that catches my attention. Interoceptive awareness. Well, actually, what I'd like to do is just start with each of you very quickly introducing yourself to the listeners and what your background is. Lisa, let's start with you. Sure, thanks. Hi, I'm Lisa Taylor Swanson. And as Michael mentioned, we actually didn't go to school together. I think you graduated right as I started, but we got to meet before and after. This was back in Seattle in the 90s and early 2000s. And I've had the real joy of practicing this medicine, I can't believe, for over 20 years now. (laughs) It's amazing how time flies. With the real focus on the roots of the medicine, practicing with both acupuncture and herbs. I had the only loose herb dispensary in my county for a long time. And about 10 years ago, I realized I really needed to return to research. I missed it. So I also am PhD prepared. I'm now at the University of Utah. I'm on the tenure line and conducting research on our medicine. It's a pleasure to be back here again with you, Michael. Great. Elizabeth, what about you? Thank you. I'm delighted to be here as well. I am an expressive arts therapist and a somatic movement educator, which in the field of complementary and integrative healthcare focuses on the body as the site and the vehicle for not only our lived experiences day to day, but also, obviously, healing processes and uh, learning and growth. So it's my great pleasure to be here with you. 
I come from the board of directors of the International Somatic Movement Education and Therapy Association, among other roles that I play. All right. So we've got a researcher. We have an artist. Nick, this is like putting together a Mission Impossible crew. Quite. Well, maybe I'm a bit of both. I'm a practitioner and researcher based in the UK, and uh, I've been in touch with uh, Lisa over the last year or so to really try and get a good interoceptive awareness study running with our new electronic system called AccuTrack. So AccuTrack is a, a new system that we've developed, or at least a, a new registry that we've developed on top of an e existing system which is specifically designed to help acupuncture and traditional East Asian medicine practitioners record their clinical outcomes in their own practice. So that's where I fit into this. We're trying to work out a study where we can get practitioners in their own clinics recording their outcomes and monitoring interoceptive awareness in their own patients. Okay. We're going to dive into the interoceptive awareness in just a second, but I'm curious about this AccuTrack system. I'm always so amazed. Again, I've known Lisa for a while and we love to geek out on medicine, but she also completely geeks out on research. I don't know much about research. In fact, I'm not that interested in research. Research doesn't, it just doesn't float my boat, but I know it does for Lisa. And so I've had her on the podcast a number of times because anytime you're talking to someone about things that they love, amazing stuff comes through. So Nick, you, it sounds like you and Lisa are very similar in this. And for all the folks that are listening, this AccuTrack system sounds like it could be a really helpful tool. Let's just talk about that for a moment. What is that? How's that different from other ways of tracking or doing research? Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. Essentially, our system was born out of a very simple idea, which is what if we could all record the outcomes in our own clinics and pull those results together into one big database. Then we would have a vast reservoir of data on outcomes for acupuncture and traditional East Asian medicine for a variety of conditions. So our system allows you as a practitioner to monitor the outcomes of your patients using remote technology. So essentially it will send patient reported questionnaires to patients automatically via email. So it takes the time and the effort of having to record this data in your clinic, allows you to do it remotely and save your time in practice. And it also allows us to develop a standardized research framework where we can compare the results of what we're all doing in our own practices. It doesn't mean you have to practice any differently mm. as a practitioner. We're always looking to encourage and track that diversity in practice. Um, but what we need to do is to some extent is to standardize the recording of those outcomes. So to do that, we have to use validated research questionnaires. So these are questionnaires which are standardized across all medical fields. And it's not just something you can kind of make up on the sofa and ask someone how, how you're doing it. There's quite a lot of science that actually goes into how we monitor progress for specific health complaints. And I started in this journey when I was trying to do a clinical audit in my own practice. And it was a nightmare. Mm. The amount of time it takes writing down paper forms, entering that into a spreadsheet and all the rest of it, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone is the honest answer. So I was like, well, surely there's got to be some system out there that you can just, that makes this a whole lot easier. And for our profession, there simply wasn't. 
This is quite commonplace in other healthcare fields, uh, physiotherapists, osteopaths, surgeons, other healthcare professions. But there was not a system that was designed specifically for our profession and all the little quirks and that go along with our profession to help us as practitioners easily monitor and record those results. So that's what we've tried to do with AccuTrack. Fantastic. Now, did I hear you correctly that this goes out to the patients or is this something that the practitioner fills out? That's absolutely right. So it's patient reported outcome questionnaires. So they're completed by the patient. And again, it's all things that make the data we're collecting a lot more valid and reliable mm -hmm. because it's all done through a system rather than paper forms, which is how this kind of research was traditionally done. And so this kind of research, and Lisa can probably speak a bit more about why this is so valuable in our profession specifically, it's called pragmatic real world research. It's not randomized control trial that we're necessarily doing here. It's looking at what results are people getting in the real world, in their own practices, doing what they do. That's brilliant. And it so much fits how we work because we're not controlled study with acupuncture. Good luck. It's difficult. I don't think it's possible. I mean, even the idea of I'm going to do a placebo point, you're still interacting with the system. Placebo controls all that doesn't really apply to us in the same way that, that it would apply to, say, a drug trial. So we're looking for results. This sounds like a fantastic tool because, number one, it gets the practitioner out of it. We can make up all kinds of stories about how our patients did, and sometimes we do. We take that bias out. We just let the patient say, hey, here's what happened. Exactly right. I did this treatment, and this is what happened. And then I guess... Lisa will take that and run her through her special chaos filter that she uses for uh, finding results. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, the complexity of the body, you nailed it, Michael. I mean, the placebo and sham acupuncture trail is thankfully becoming history. NIH will no longer fund those studies. They finally realize it's like testing full-dose acupuncture against a partial-dose acupuncture, whether it's contact needling a non-point, because the whole body is one dynamic system. And if you perturb one little part of it, you're still going to have some effect, even with a sham acupuncture. One other brief thing I wanted to add, my understanding, Nick, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Accutrax is based on the EHR used by the NHS in the UK. So it's high caliber, rigorous. It's My sense is it's pretty comparable to EPIC that's used here in the US. It's HIPAA compliant and also is a way that the clinician can tick Oh, yeah, I needled heart seven, kidney six. I, it was a diagnosis of heart kidney harmony. or So it's all of our TCM or East Asian medicine differential diagnostics. The points are in there. The herbs are in there. So you can just use it as your EHR. And then it plugs off, you know, like he, Nick was saying, those emails get sent off to patients with the validated scales at predetermined intervals. Did I say that correctly, Nick? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it also sends the patient intake forms out to patients automatically by email as well. So it's got the intake forms, the note taking, as well as the patient record, reported outcome measures, all built into to one system and one framework there. And we started off with three plans, a simple pain plan, a well-being and pain plan, which is kind of an overall monitor of health, energy levels, biopsychosocial outcomes. And then a mental health plan as well, particularly tracking um, anxiety and depression related symptoms. And then recently, we have just added a very exciting new plan to the system 
the interoceptive awareness plan where we're really really interested in studying interoceptive awareness outcomes alongside the outcomes for things like pain well-being and mental health okay this even though i'm not a research guy i'm getting kind of excited about this this sounds really interesting is this thing ready to go? Are you guys using it now? Is this something that practitioners can begin to participate in or is there some launch date? Absolutely. So we've been up and running for, I think, around a year now or so. Mm. And so it's up and running. Practitioners can sign up and, and use this system tomorrow in their clinics if they're interested. And we've got a, a special discount code for Geological Podcast listeners, which is, I'll just get that up now. So it's up, I believe. It is Qi, QI, 2022, US if you're in the US and UK if you're in the UK. And uh, we're in some exciting conversations with organizations, some membership organizations and associations where we're, we're looking to sponsor a, a big full-scale kind of pragmatic trial where the organization are, are going to hopefully sponsor some subscriptions for users so the acupuncturists can not have that cost as a barrier for using the system because our goals are very much about the research, very much about the data and, and getting a really positive movement going forward for our profession. Wow, this sounds amazing. Is there a website that they need to go to do the sign-up? Absolutely. So you can head to acu-track.org mm. and uh, you can easily have a look about the system. We've got lots of videos and tutorials and, uh, and things like that so people can really check it out before they're looking to sign up. And yeah, they can always get in touch with us if they've got any further questions. Okay. I will make sure that all of that information is on the show notes page. So if you're listening to this and, and you've got interest, you didn't catch all that, we're not going to repeat it. Just head over to the website, go to the show notes page. It'll just, there'll be some links for you to click on. All right. Now, interoceptive awareness. Let's hook this piece in. Elizabeth, let's hear from the artistic side about this and, and then we'll see how that weaves in with our medical, I'm using air quotes here, medical world. Yes, thank you. So in expressive arts therapy, and even more so in somatic movement, education, and therapy, the body is the primary locus of information. So you can see how my interests overlap with Lisa's in terms of cultivating a greater sense of body awareness, whether it's in acupuncture or in the somatic movement and expressive arts work that I do. Interoception is the broadest term for this internal sensing of bodily processes. And interoceptive awareness, you know, there are scholars and researchers that have developed this term and um, different facets of interoception. But for the sake of this conversation, um, you can, well, let's just go with a more general definition for the time being. So what benefit does heightened bodily awareness bring to an acupuncture session or to a somatic movement therapy session? Well, you might imagine that coming from our cultures here in the U.S. and the U.K., I'm speaking broad strokes, mainstream culture. Many of us are a bit or quite a bit dissociated from our bodies, right? This is the culture we live in, Cartesian dualism from centuries ago, this split 
between mind and body and this idea that the body is a machine, this objective external view is limited. And especially for our modalities, we begin to break that down and say, no, there's this whole sensing, dynamic, subjective experience of living in a body. And the more that people can be in touch with that, aware of what their inner experiences are, the more literate they become as a participant in their own healing, in their own health care. So that's what I want to offer to begin with here. And I imagine that Lisa may have a lot more to say. Well, I love where you started, Elizabeth. And I made some notes because I was thinking about our talk today. And I literally wrote down a bunch of what you just said. And where I would take it as clinicians, when interceptive awareness is dysregulated, when we have this disharmony, that is associated with anxiety, depression, addiction, eating disorders, chronic pain, PTSD, disassociation, as you said. So that's what the literature says. If we're unable to, to be with sensations, to notice them, to attend to them, if we tend to freak out, we have anxiety or if we catastrophize is another jargon from the literature, then our perceptions of those bodily sensations, whether it's pain or a hot flash or hunger or what have you, are going to be off. So I think with our medicines, whether acupuncture or somatic work, being able to help our patients attend to their lived experience, literally attend to their body attend to those sensations, and be able to be with them, again, without flipping out or catastrophizing or going into narrative about, oh, no, maybe this is a, a bone metastasis or something. No, it's, it's back pain. I'm having a sensation in my back. So I think that dysregulation is key because that's what we often see in our patients. And then helping individuals, again, come to be at home and in themselves in their lived experience. Lisa, I hear you use the term not go into narrative when people bump up against some sensation that they have in their body. And the question that comes up for me is, is that even possible? We are such meaning-making, story-making creatures. I don't know if it's possible to not go to some kind of narrative. I watch my human mind. I watch my patients' human minds, my family's for that matter. And it could be something as simple as the snap of a twig outside at dusk. And the mind is like, what is that? Is this dangerous? Is this not dangerous? Is someone in my yard? Was that the dog? Our minds immediately go to narrative. Is it possible for them not to? Probably not, but I think to notice, oh, we're in this story right now, and to come back to, and of course, like you say, if you're out in the forest at, at dusk and hear a twig, oh, is somebody after me? Then you need to attend to that situation and not just zone out in your lived experience in your body or something. But that behavioral aspect is the other part of interceptive awareness. So we attend to these sensations. Also, what you hear, Michael, is extraception. So that kind of is a little bit different example, but Certainly, that quick fear that comes up, that's intercepted for sure. Mm -hmm. 
but you appraise and respond uh, to those bodily uh, sensations and that response. Maybe, maybe it's um, in the case of back pain. Oh, I'm going to go see my acupuncturist. My back's hurting me again. Or I'm going to do some yoga. I'm going to do some stretching or different action can be taken from that lived experience. But I do think that regulated interceptive awareness, we can better catch, oh, I'm in that story. I'm going to come back to my felt sensation. I'm going to come back to noticing and being aware. And and I don't have to distract myself with this narrative. I can come back to the sensation. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Oh, I was just reading yesterday uh, a research paper that shows they have done neuroscience research on this exact topic that you're bringing up. Our narrative accounts often happen in terms of brain processes. They call it the default mode network. Mm. It's where our, our mind is wandering and sort of telling stories, right? And they have seen through neuroimaging that when people practice, are taught and practice interoceptive awareness, that literally in the brain scans, it suppresses the default mode network. Does it suppress it or does it change the subtext of the storyline? It actually switches. They see in the brain scans that it's the neurological activity switches from that network that supports mind wandering Mm -hmm. into the network that supports interoceptive awareness, which it basically switches the brain processes from thinking about what you're experiencing to directly, immediately sensing what you're experiencing. So in this example that you're using, it would be if you want to go with hearing the sound and then, oh, I'm on alert, my sympathetic nervous system is activated. So all of a sudden, I'm feeling my heart racing. I'm feeling a flushing in my face. So I'm aware of those direct, those immediate sensory experiences, rather than the story, the narrative. So I just wanted to bring the the neuroscientific evidence into the conversation. 
it's so cool that we live in this modern age and we have all these fantastic diagnostic methods and tests and ways of looking inside us in a sense. It's just mind-boggling and wonderful. What Elizabeth, what I, what I think I hear you saying here, and this is profound, wow. It sounds like instead of going to story, this kind of practice will take people deeper into their sensing. So that instead of having this mediating story in between, and then now we're listening to the story of what this might mean, we are back in more direct connection with our experience absent some kind of narrative about it. So I want to throw out a couple terms that are familiar to theological listeners and see what you both think, Nick and, and Michael, because I've been really sitting with these questions. So we have, of course, the five aspects of spirit in East Asian medicine with the, the hun corresponding with the wood element, the shun with the fire element, the po with the earth, and so forth. And then the e, you know, the thinking mind. And what I've been reading is about the e and the shun. So the shun being the mind, this, you know, we see the shun reflected in your eyes, and that's like a vibrant, healthy person. The shen and the e have this like relationship where the the shen is controlled by the e, this like thinking part of ourselves in Taoist alchemy and, and in our medicine more broadly with five elements. And I think this e, you know, we get thinking, here's the story. If we're able to calm that, then we can have the shen kind of that heart mind rising and and just being. So that's where I'm thinking about interceptive awareness in terms of jargon of East Asian medicine. And I'd love to hear what you think about that, if that makes sense, if I'm reading that right or wrong, or what else comes to mind for both of you. And not to be exclusionary, Elizabeth, I just wanted to talk shop about five elements for a minute. Nick, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's um, if you're going to try and match that or or find things in, in common, the years, the number one contender, isn't it, as far as interoceptive awareness goes and uh, you've got that that sort of dichotomy or, or almost com- complementary aspect of awareness and intention they're interplaying at the same time haven't you right so lisa i really appreciate your taking this and, and seeing how does this play in our chinese medicine world if it does, and if it does, where might it play? And so looking at the spirit aspect of the organs or the channels, those great resonances, that seems like a fruitful place to go hunting for it. And I think it's just to tie it back to real life practice, in a sense as well, and a lot of what Lisa and Elizabeth are talking about there, about these very rich inner workings of how we're sensing ourselves and how we're responding to you know distress patterns and 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 things like that in our practices we often see complex patients right Mm. relatively rarely we get a simple acute thing does happen but largely we're talking about long-term conditions multiple issues ongoing at the same time with a, a complex life story that's going on with the patient as well if you just track someone's pain that's not the whole story of what's going on and in complexity science research i think lisa you talk a lot about emergent outcomes don't you mm-hmm. emergent outcomes are well 
what are the the unexpected outcomes that often come from acupuncture and, and Chinese medicine practice? And quite often practitioners will have this notion of, okay, well, they came in for their shoulder, but that was just the, the start. And we went down this whole rabbit hole of other stuff, which ended up coming up and we ended up helping some other health issues along the way, which just sort of came, evolved throughout the course of treatments naturally. When we're tracking interoceptive awareness, we're giving an opportunity really for the, the patient to engage deeper in those aspects of their health and the body, some of these deeper aspects. And we're, we're moving away from just, well, is your pain better? Yes or no. What else is changing? What's your relationship with your pain like? Has that changed? Because sometimes there's no way to get rid of all of the pain. And it's about changing the relationship. It's like, well, well I'm, I'm able to do more despite being in pain. And so when we're tracking interoceptive awareness, Lisa, I think the wonderful thing about this for us is we're playing to the strengths of what our medicine tends to do, which is look more in depth at someone's body, their relationship with their own body and their own health. So I have two brief cases that I think might help illustrate this. One is actually the person, the patient who started me on my dissertation journey. And this person came in, this is like 12 years ago, she had sciatica down one leg. And it was the usual kind of sciatica, pain shooting down the leg. But what she said to me was this, Lisa, my right leg does not feel like my left, not only in terms of pain, but it feels like a dead log. I wish I was a Barbie doll and I could just pop that leg off and pop on a new one because it just feels horrible. And so whatever number of treatments, I don't remember, two, four, six, something. When she came back one day, she said, wow, my sciatica is gone. The pain is gone. But more importantly, my dead leg no longer feels like a dead leg. It feels like my other leg. And I was thinking kind of like what you were saying, Nick, like it's not only her pain perception has changed, but how she perceives her own body, the, her body feels differently to her. And that was profound for me to hear. And then a second case, just from a couple weeks ago, I treated a patient who's on the autism spectrum. And one thing she had talked about was, you know, I just can't describe what's wrong with me. It's hard for me to put words to it. Just I feel off. And that's a part of, for some people's experience on the spectrum, not everyone, it's hard to put words to how they're intercepting, basically. And after three sessions, she said, well, Lisa, I can actually say I felt hungry the other day. And I, I usually don't feel that. I just know it's time to eat. And so I do. And she said, I actually can't explain it exactly, but I'm feeling my body in ways I never felt it before. And so I was like, interoceptive awareness. She is able to be in her body in a way that she, I don't want to say it in that way exactly, because that's Descartes, you know, like you're in your body. But she was being in a different way. She was embodied in a different way. So in case those cases are helpful and, and less abstract. I am thinking about some of the conversations I've had with a fellow named Nick Pohl, who's been on the podcast a few times. He's written a book called, it's about clean language, and it's about very skillful use of language and helping people go deeper into their experiences. Usually it starts with something like a pain or some kind of annoyance, whatever it was that brought someone into the office, but very, very quickly there's weird parts of the story that start to unwind as you go into it. Things that apparently made, from a certain perspective, it makes no sense other than 
if you are tracking and following with the person through their experience, all kinds of things show up. And sometimes it's stories, and sometimes it's colors, and sometimes it's sound, and sometimes it's the sensate kind of thing. It's all held lightly and with great respect. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of things will naturally shift on their own. And there may still be back pain. But the relation to the back pain is totally different. Foreground and background. Just like Nick was saying, I've talked with my patients about that. Usually, of course, if they're going to come see an acupuncturist, it's usually the last resort, not always. But whatever it is that's bugging them is in the foreground of their life. It's dominating their life most often or limiting their activities of daily life or something. And eventually, if it can be in the background where it's not limiting, like one of my patients said, oh my gosh, I can get down on the ground and play with my grandkids again. I can only do it for a few minutes because the pain is still there. But it's, you know, again, that background, it's less consuming or something like that. Um, to help practitioners, I've actually just pulled up here, Lisa, the Maya 2 questionnaire to help practitioners get more of a sense of interoceptive awareness, what the kind of questions are that we're asking patients about in order to track and monitor this. And really for patients as well to, to help them bring awareness back into their own bodies. And just, some, I mean, it's really amazing questionnaire. We've got some great statements here that I think most people will resonate with on on some level which is i ignore physical tension or discomfort until it becomes really severe and the patient will have to state how whether they sort of strongly agree with that or or they don't when i feel pain or discomfort i try to power through it these are really valuable things to monitor over a long period of time when you're treating a chronic health complaint aren't they completely agree nick it strikes me if i may that as you read those, Nick, how those statements can not only indicate or reflect how accurately patients may describe their symptoms or inaccurately they describe their symptoms, right? If they are practiced in overriding these bodily sensations and signals, how accurate will their own self-reporting be when they're sharing what's going on with them with their acupuncturists in this case and also it strikes me how valuable increasing interoceptive awareness can be for their healing process that it's part of the learning and, and healing perhaps to if those shift over time to be attending to pain signals more regularly so that they don't have to become extreme in order to register. So that there is behavioral change potentially growing out of heightened interoceptive awareness as well. That's right. And what we've done on AccuTrack with this questionnaire as part of our interoceptive awareness plan is when you monitor a patient's interoceptive awareness over time, starting from the baseline and going on the weeks and the months and up to a year, 
we break down the domains of interoceptive awareness, the domains relating to, to pain, to your emotional state, to your ability for your breathing to regulate your pain and tension. And we've got these seven domains, haven't we, Lisa? And maybe you could talk about those a little bit more. And what we display to the practitioners is a visual graph of the progress of not only the whole interoceptive awareness, but these separate subdomains of how they're changing and how they might be improving over time. Maybe the patient's developing a much better relationship with pain, but there's still some uh, emotional difficulty going on there. So you can really get into the nitty gritty details about monitoring that patient's story as it, as it goes on. Now, that's fascinating for us as a, from a research perspective as well to, you know, to see with what kind of health complaints, what kind of changes are we going to eventually see happening in these different subdomains. Nick, that is brilliant. I honestly never even thought about that, but that is an absolute utility for acupuncturists because with AccuTrack, you can just go onto the dashboard and see, like you're saying, the patient's scale scores and whatnot. And it's not abstract. Like Nick was saying, the subscales of the, it's called the Maya scale, the multidimensional assessment of interoceptive awareness. There's noticing. So you'll know, oh, my patient's better able to notice their data is trending up notice their sensations. The next one is not distracting. So they can be with those sensations. They don't have to distract themselves from what they're feeling, not worrying. So they're able to just, again, be with those sensations, not worry about them, if that's changing or not over time. Attention regulation, if again, they can regulate their attention to feel what they're feeling, like Elizabeth was saying, it doesn't have to be a 10 before I notice it, like, oh, this sensation is a three. I'm going to do some stretches. I won't wait till it's a 10, something like that. Emotionally aware, if they're, again, their emotions, if they're not showing some improvement in that subscale, like Nick was saying, maybe it's they still have some unresolved emotions or they're stuck emotionally or something like that, but it's the emotional aspect of the pain, not solely the physical structural aspect of the pain. And again, I notice how my body changes when I'm angry. Yeah. You've got a liver cheese stagnation patient. That's the domain you want to track. Yes. <laughs> Bingo. So it sounds like in addition to collecting some very valuable information for research, this is something a practitioner can use to help monitor what's going on for their patients. Do I have that correct? 100%, Michael. Okay. So this is even more interesting to me now because so often people come in and you ask them how they're doing. They'll often say something like, maybe a little better, about the same, maybe a little better, something like that. About the same, maybe a little better. So often I have found that means one of two things. It means nothing's changed. I'm being very nice to you because I want to be a good patient. And I like you as the practitioner. I want you to feel good. And the other is Whatever problem they had, it's gone. I mean, gone, like gone, not in their awareness, gone. Until you bring it up. Oh, so you're still waking three times at night to urinate. And they're like, no. Often with a curious look on their face, like when did that? Oh, yeah, that used to happen. It's very hard to pay attention to what's not present. That's right. And that's why it's... And so it sounds like this tool would be a very useful adjunct in the clinic to see what's really happening. That's exactly right, Michael. And as you point out, I mean, every practitioner can tell you 10 plus examples of that conversation happening with a patient, which is why it's so important to monitor outcomes in a kind of standardized and, and thorough way. And you can show someone 
their data on the screen of where they were three months ago, because often it is hard to remember, especially if pain levels go up and down and, and things like that. It is hard to remember. But yeah, what we really wanted to do is, is trying to make research useful for the practitioner as well. What you were saying earlier, I think is quite typical of a lot of acupuncture practitioners out there. Not I've researched, I can see how it's valuable. I'm not sure how relevant is it to my practice. I'm not sure I'm that interested in it or how do I even get involved with it? Well, here's a way where you can get involved in it very easily straight away. Here's a way where it can become immediately useful to your own practice and for your own patients. And that's a big part of, I think, the mission we're on is, is to try and change the attitudes, culture around research to, to just show that it is actually, and it can actually be very, very useful. Clinically relevant and not in just a kind of egghead, oh, look, we can track this against some kind of statistical analysis that nobody understands unless you've got a lot of training into something very everyday useful. Actionable. Mm-hmm. Actionable. Actionable. I've been treating this patient for um, chronic lower back pain for three months. I can see their pain scores kind of going up and up and down a little bit. They're getting a bit better, but then their pains come back this week. What do you do? You have to take action. Something needs to change there. You can't just keep sticking the same points in. You can't just keep doing the same lifestyle advice or something there needs to change either what you're doing or what the patient is doing in their life, whichever one or a combination of both. And by routinely tracking and monitoring this data, that is gives you an invitation to actually use that to inform your own clinical decision-making. And by the same token from the other side, you could look at that kind of thing and yeah, maybe the pain hasn't shifted a lot, but as Lisa was saying, foreground background, maybe it turns out they're having fewer fights with their, with their spouse. Or maybe they're sleeping better, or maybe they're less anxious because it sounds like you're looking at other factors. So you get a much more nuanced look beyond how's your back feel? Exactly. You've got the overall and then the in depth. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, I want to turn back to you for just a moment. It's funny, me, not particularly a research guy, it's like, ooh, this sounds really interesting. But I want to turn back to you, Elizabeth, because the process itself of going inside, of paying attention to our sensation rather than our story, especially given your background, movement and expressive arts and, and working with the body and, and embodied experience, how could people listening to this right now begin to explore or, or dip into this kind of thing in, in a way that they can work with their patients and, and perhaps be a guide? Mm, such a great question. Thank you. I am an advocate for very simple uh, mindfulness practices. The research that I was referring to earlier in the conversation about the neuroimaging comes actually from studies about mindfulness practices and meditation. And so somatic awareness and interoceptive awareness for me is really simply paying attention in the present moment. So as you're listening to this conversation right now, you might become aware of 
the places that your body is in contact with surfaces underneath you. It might be through your sits bones, your buttocks. It might be your feet resting on the floor. You might become aware of the temperature of the air on your skin and the quality of the breath moving through your body. How do you sense your breath? And so all of these glimpses, these mini check-ins on a sensory level, practitioners can use throughout their day, throughout their um, encounters with patients. Because I believe that, and this comes, I have to give a shout out here of recognition to a man named Resma Menachem. And he happens to, he's a somatic experiencing practitioner and master teacher. And he writes and practices a lot about um, racialized trauma as a black man in the U.S. And he says, settled bodies invite other bodies to settle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is the principle that I think that so many practitioners, whatever your modality, may begin to embody and practice in their work with patients and clients. So as I am sensing my own body, I believe I become more um, capable of being present with whoever is in front of me. Mm -hmm. And there may be some sort of felt sense, nonverbal interaction. That, oh, she's sensing on some level her breath, the contact that her sits bones are making with the chair. Oh, I'm not saying that this is a conscious process, but this may be, you know, nonverbal sort of body to body communication that the patient or the client then may settle in to their lived experience a bit more. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. 
this really lands for me. And it lands for me because I've had the great good fortune to have gone through COVID with lockdowns and isolation. Okay, isolation, not good for any human being, really bad. My clinic closed for two months at the very beginning. As it opened back up, as I became less afraid, as I started deciding I'm going to see people again, having people in my presence, me being in their presence, them being in my presence, two human nervous systems in the same room, literally breathing the same air, the thing that we weren't supposed to be doing back then. Those first few weeks of sitting with other people and recognizing how our nervous systems were reflecting off of each other and pinging off of each other and listening to each other or getting wound up by each other, it was profound. It was an incredible lesson. And so hearing you talk about settled bodies invite other bodies to settle, I do this all the time in my practice. When people are getting wound up about something, I don't want to talk them out of it. And I don't want to put the kibosh on it either because I want to be respectful. So the way I deal with it is I breathe a little deeper, I speak a little deeper, and I speak a little slower as an invitation. I'm not asking them to do something. I'm not trying to force them into anything. I'm inviting that as a possibility. And so I hear you talk about this, Elizabeth, of you as a practitioner become more, I'm going to say, stable in our own sensation. It can have a powerful effect. You know, Michael, I remember a conversation we had a really long time ago, back when I employed about 10 people and had a very, very busy clinic. And I remember us talking about mentoring employees and mentoring more junior clinicians and trying to figure out the special sauce. Like, what is it that you see with one clinician often really good outcomes? They're super busy. They have patients coming out of their ears. And some clinicians are like, wow, I have not enough patients. I'm not busy enough. And what's going on? And I don't know if this is it, but I'm thinking it might be a part of it, that presence of being able to drop into and hold that space with your client, inviting that entrainment. There's a lot of literature about patient practitioner mm-hmm. entrainment where you're, you like you said, actually, the nervous systems of those two people sync with one another. There's heart rate variability changes, whatnot. But I think that's a part of, and not, I hate to put it in terms of like being a star clinician or whatnot, but I do believe there's the capacity for meaning and presence. And it does translate to really good outcomes for our patients when we can be present with them. It translates to clinic load. Mm-hmm. It translates to the number of people you can see. And, and that makes sense to me because if we have the capacity to be with people ourselves without getting all wigged out, we've all gotten toward the end of a day and it's like, oh my God, three more people, what am I going to do? If you're at that place and it's 10 o'clock in the morning There's a good reason why you don't have a lot of patients because you haven't yet built that capacity. This is is not a judgment. It's an observation. 
We need a certain amount of capacity. And the, and the odd thing is, with this kind of capacity, it's not about doing more. It just might be about being more. I know it sounds so trite, doesn't it? It's so cliche. So true. And yet, it's so true. Marguerite Dinkins gave me that advice. I was a student back at our school in Seattle, panicking about my treatment of patients under supervision. It was the student clinic, and I was terrified. I was like, how am I going to remember all these points and all these herbs? And Marguerite was like, Lisa, it is enough to show up. And she meant it in the real sense that we're talking about. Like, Lisa, you need to be present. All that stuff you memorize, yeah, it'll, you can look it up if you need to. What matters is showing up. Yes. Okay. So we say that, and that sounds really easy. Well, you just got to show up. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you're right. <laughs> Nick, I'd like to hear from you. I so appreciate your analytical and research bend and, and, and the way that you've woven this into the medicine. I'd, I'd love to get your sense of, of this piece of how we are and how we can increase that capacity. Yeah, well, I think what Elizabeth very eloquently stated there and others followed, and I was immediately just relaxed listening to it. Mm. It's probably one of the main strengths of our medicine and one of the main strengths of acupuncture practitioners is, is that, or at least a, a part of that element, is some aspect of our training. And it is something that as practitioners, we know we're supposed to do. And it's emphasized more. And just tying it back to the patients, it's the same phenomenon or it's part of the same process of what can help us be better and more present clinicians is also the same thing that the patients need to engage in, which is part of the natural healing mechanism. And so by putting ourselves in that state more, we're potentially helping our patients get into that state. It's not just a nice to have, it's an essential part of healing. I believe, and I think Lisa, you're the same, is you would say this is a kind of active therapeutic ingredient, mm -hmm. potentially in, in, in the way acupuncture and uh, you know, these related therapies do actually work on the body. You know, Nick, that's exactly spot on. And one of my teachers in Seattle, Jung Lauscher, he used to say to patients after he'd inserted like 40, 50 needles, I don't know if you ever studied with Dr. <laughs> Jung Michael, but wow, it was a lot of needles. Jung Gushui, two TDPs, everybody. Wow. He would Far at will. Yeah, right? And he would say, all right, while you're laying with the needles in place, calm your mind and don't think about things. Just calm your mind. And I ended up telling my patients that over the years. And between that lady with the dead log leg and remembering Dr. Jung, I realized, I think what he was saying was, don't be in the E, all this thinking mind, oh, I got to like do all these things today when they're laying on the table with the needles. Rather, I tell my patients, if you find you're in that story, oh gosh, I got all the stuff I got to do. Oh, okay. I'm going to follow my breath. Lisa said, follow my breath, come back to the body, take your mind noticing to each needle. Can you feel it? Where is it? What's going on? But to come into the body, come into that present moment. And I realized that I think he was actively coaching patients to interceptively be aware. Don't be in the story. Don't be in the thinking mind. Be in, in the moment in your, in your lived experience. Now, this is a huge challenge for many, many people. 
I think one of the reasons why acupuncture is often helpful for these folks is because they don't have to try to do something with their mind. Thank God for a moment because they're always doing something with their mind. Their E is completely running wild. Mm -hmm. And there's something about acupuncture that pulls such a stillness mm -hmm. out of our being that it's not that we're doing something with our E. Our E just has a much bigger field to go run around in rather than pinging off the walls. I think there's that. I've seen that. And maybe, Elizabeth, I, I'm, I'm going to direct this to you because I need some help. I give my patients, after I put the needles in, I say, you know, I can leave you with some quiet or some quiet music. And I always can tell the folks that are kind of on the beam with themselves because they go, oh, some quiet, thank you. Some people just say, oh, I like music. And then there are the people that say, you have to put on music or my mind is just going to go berserk. I have to have the music. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I didn't use the right needles if you think your mind's going to go berserk. But some people are just, they are just that one. Uh, it's really judgmental to say they're wound up. That's just the state they're used to operating in. So Elizabeth, can you help me out here? with some very simple things I might be able to say to my patients instead of giving them the option of music to gently invite them into the kind of inquiry that leads to this internal experience that you've shared with us. Hmm. I think there's nothing wrong with relaxing music first. I'd like to affirm what you have been doing already and suggest that, and research shows this to be true, that when people listen to music that they find pleasant and relaxing, it supports parasympathetic nervous system response. Mm. That is the organic mechanism in everyone's system to soothe and settle. And that physiologically that corresponds to slowing respiration rate, slowing the heart rate. So even if it's external input supporting this soothing and settling, I think that that's valuable. And that that physiological response may offer more interoceptive awareness, that the settling itself of heart rate and breathing may allow more space and more softness. I know that's a very <laughs> non-technical term that I'm using there, but a softening of awareness that allows people to sense more potentially. I think that Lisa's suggestion about paying attention to your breath can be a very profound access point or way in to interoception, interoceptive awareness. Now, for some people, if they are really activated, if their sympathetic nervous system is really online, paying attention to their breath could be distressing, could be more challenging or frustrating. Mm -hmm. So in that case, the soothing music might be exactly what they need, right? The other comment that I could offer in the 
context of acupuncture that occurs to me right off the top of my head is to sense the contact that they're making with the table underneath them and allow themselves to receive that support. Mm. Those words may be an invitation to drop in and sense more deeply what's happening internally. I really like those words. Mm. Sense the table, feel yourself on it, in interaction with gravity, and feel how you're supported. Mm-hmm. I think what I was asking you for, Elizabeth, I've been watching entirely too much Star Wars stuff with the kid lately. And there's a part of me that's looking for a simple Jedi mind trick that will help people to get out of that hamster cage. You know, like just open the door to that hamster cage of the mind and and let it be different. And And, and, and I find language so interesting because... Very simple words can be powerful suggestions. Yeah. Another phrase that I use sometimes is, I invite you to turn your gaze inward and notice whatever there is to notice now. Okay. What do you do when they do that and there is a ferocious tiger? Then I redirect their attention. I say, okay, so now you know. There's a ferocious tiger present in your soma, in the shared space here with us. Mm. And I'm here with you as well. And in addition, what else is there in addition? Can you still sense the movement of your breath? Mm-hmm. Can you still feel the contact that you're making with the table underneath you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Right, to widen the field of awareness. Love that. Widen the field of awareness. Bring it in. Include it. Yes. Note the other things that are included. You're, the sensation of being on the table. The way that you notice your breath going in and out, however that happens to be going, that we're in this room together. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways of widening that field and bringing the attention both inward and outward, but expand it. I think that's doable. I was wondering if that attention would be the shen, being the center of emotions and cognition, not the E hamster cage, but if widening i don't know but i'm wondering if you if you all think that would be cultivating the shun honoring supporting its function in that moment i think it is i didn't give you an answer earlier when you were asking about the e and the shen i've been studying this for a long time but you know every time i come up against the e and the shen and the the hun i'm always scratching my head and going am i making shit up or am i seeing or am i getting glimpses yeah. My suspicion about the shun as it relates to the presence of the heart and the sovereign fire, it's simply about presence. Nothing more, nothing less. Simply about presence. So I my suspicion is that you might be right about that. It certainly is worth working with in our clinics and then seeing what happens. 
Because the Shen as this like root of mental life, the seed of emotion, you know, the heart has the Shen. And I don't want to be all like um, overly focused on jargon, but I think it helps us, again, take action if we know, oh, yeah, okay, we can work with heart seven or three or five or Ren 17 or 15, you know, depending on where we want to work with that concept. But I think that cultivating the Shen and helping to calm the E is a part of this conversation we're having. I think you just put your finger right on it. And I've never heard it expressed that way. When I'm thinking about modern life in the modern world, you know, when we were in acupuncture school, Nick, you probably heard this too. It's like, oh, everybody's all woody and and we need to like move people's liver chi and the world would be a better place. But I just heard Lisa say, calm the E and support the Shen. And I'm thinking, oh, that might be right. What's your sense of that? Yeah, 100%. More true now than ever. What I love is that healthcare practitioners and researchers of different traditions clearly realizing the importance of this there's a different language going on here aren't there we're, we're almost attempting a little bit of a, a, a translation or a comparison between the languages here of interoceptive awareness but you know this is not something that's exclusive to this healthcare practice or this medicine is it lisa or elizabeth this is something that presumably healthcare practitioners in lots of different styles and practices are starting to look at are starting to realize is important for healing and just to draw it back to the kind of placebo element before it's it's um, we've really got to start to redefine that term because I think people have got the really the wrong idea of what the hell is going on there. And the placebo is all the stuff we just don't really understand about healing yet. And interoceptive awareness is a key ingredient in that healing space, and it's an appealing target not to try and speak about it a bit too analytically, but it is. Clinicians, practitioners are looking at ways to tap into that. Mindfulness and meditation and yoga has become so popular because people are clearly realizing that, that they need some kind of practices. They need to try and engage with this um, for the wide range of benefits that it's going to sort of bring to them. So the stage where the Western scientific language is trying to articulate, I think, what traditional medicine has been stating in slightly different languages and also emphasizing for years and years and years. And, and I'm happy to see a sort of at least a common ground or an agreement coming here where both sides are now realizing, look, this is important. This is a really important piece of the puzzle. It's an important thing to be doing and working with, and it's a very important thing to study as well. It is amazing how things are converging in that way. You know, we often talk about integrative medicine, you know, medicines coming together. But what I hear you saying here, Nick, is it, it's not just medicines coming together, it's perspectives, vastly different perspectives that, that are suddenly going, we're kind of looking at the same thing here. Very different places that we stand, but we're seeing something similar. And your take here on placebo, I want to underscore this because I think this is important. I'm going to say what you just said. Placebo is what we don't yet understand about medicine. Did I get that right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, that's important 
Why is that important? That's important because so often in our world, at least the part that I inhabit, I hear people talk about placebo and they wave their hands and go, because that's not real. Oh, it's just placebo. Mm. And then it's dismissed instead of, oh, placebo. That's the X on the treasure map of figuring out how medicine works. That's what we don't understand. Wow. Yeah, you nailed it, Michael. Exactly right. We could have a whole conversation on just that, couldn't we? Absolutely. Yes, we could. Well, I would love to invite all of you another day back to a conversation on placebo. <laughs> That'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll set up a time offline here. We should probably land this plane for the day, though. Uh, man, places that we've covered. I would just appreciate if each of you would just take a moment and share one little bit that clinicians listening to this might be able to think about or use or take away, put in their back pocket, try out in their clinic, consider using on their family members, you know, just, just a little something because we've covered so much, but just maybe just put the dot on the eye here. Well, I'm happy to go first and just circle back to Nick's very exciting project with Lisa. And the AccuTrack system is thrilling to me. I think about all of the potential applications of that system of measuring people's interoceptive awareness and having that be a focus of clinical practice as well as patient outcomes. And just in closing here to mention that the National Institutes for Health, the NIH here in the United States, has identified interoception as an important area of research. And they have dedicated significant funding to people who are skilled in research and interested in this topic. So thank you for bringing us together and um, beginning to scratch the surface of this exciting inquiry that really feels like it's on the cutting edge of where different medicine modalities may be headed in the future. Thank you and best wishes with your project, Nick and Lisa. Thanks. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Um, yeah, I'd like to take it back to something I think you said as well, Michael earlier in the episode, which is, I'm not much of a researcher myself. Well, I think every practitioner out there is a researcher. I think you're working your practice, you're trying to figure out what points you're using, and whether you're going to get a good result next week. And depending on the feedback you get from your patient, you may or may not change the process. And you're probably writing something down about how that patient responded and what you did and what you didn't do or what you might do if that didn't work. So I think we're all researchers. We just might not be recording our notes in quite the same way. So really one of the best things we're trying to do is really just try and give us a common language and a standardized framework where we can record things in the same way so we can compare and learn off each other. Build a big database, a big reservoir of information, of clinical information that's useful for us, for our patients, for our fellow practitioners. We're trying to open up that clinical experience to so that everyone can kind of input 
their clinical experience into one place where everyone can learn from it. So you don't have to spend 50, 60 years seeing X number of patients with Y different types of health complaints. You can also learn from what your colleagues are doing. So we're super excited about this project. We're super excited about bringing interoceptive awareness measurement into what we're doing as well. And as Elizabeth saying, there's big funding opportunities for this. This is something NIH, this is something other healthcare practitioners and the medical community are interested in. Well, guess what? This is playing to our strengths as a medical system because we're already doing this. And as Lisa pointed out, we have some very old frameworks that are helpful in looking at this, looking at the Shen in the E aspect of this is this is totally interwoven it's very exciting to see what's happening on the modern cutting edge and how it is meeting up with our our ancient i don't want to say understanding because i don't know how much i understand but there's some stuff that's been handed down to us that is worth chewing on for a decade or two or three so there's that lisa what about you I have dueling tips inside of my mind. One is Western and one is Eastern. So I'm going to be brief. The Western one, the gold standard of objective measurement of interoception is the heartbeat detection task. Part of it, I think, is bunk. But in the case of clinic, I think what might be useful is if the patient's on the table, in addition to what I love Elizabeth said, feel yourself on the table being held by the table, all of that, follow the breath. Another possibility is, can you feel your heartbeat? Because usually we're pretty rubbish at feeling our heartbeat. We only feel every third beat or so, unless we're really ramped up, then you feel every single one, your throat is pounding, you know, the carotid or whatever. But that might be another thing you suggest to the patient. Just turn your attention inward. Do you feel your heartbeat? Because it's hard to do, and it'll take a lot of inside listening to do that. And, and it may help settle them right in. The Western, uh, rather the Eastern thing I was thinking about is we have left out the juror and I just love the will, you know, that juror is so strong and the it's housed in the kidneys, the kidney heart, of course, relationship is so key. And so I think in our conversations about the spirit, I think that that will rising up to meet the Shen, to help the Shen go out in the world in whatever way the person wants to launch that in their life, but to really keep the Jur and the Shen as well as the E in mind. Yeah, wonderful. I'm thinking of, we can look at that five-phase chart and you put Earth in the center. In fact, I'm going to be having a conversation later today with someone who looks at all the seasonal changes, and you can see Earth as showing up at the end of each season for 18 days. Mm. And when you put it on that vertical, then the will and the shun are connected through the E. Right. That might be a way to help the E to settle down a little. Yeah. Yeah, give it some good work to do. Like a container. Yeah. With the shun and the jur. It becomes the container. Oh, man. All right. All three of you, thank you so much for this time today. I am very excited about your project. I have learned some things about sitting with my patients. It's just been a wonderful time spent, and I hope all y'all's listening have found this to be helpful as well. There'll be information on the show notes page, so uh, do check that out. We'll have some resources for you, and thanks, everybody, for uh, making the time today. Pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much. 
I love it when we can start with something that has one foot squarely in the Western rational and scientific and the other landing firmly into the old Chinese science that includes Shen, Yi, and Zhir. That to me is when I know that we're onto something, that we've got a hold of something that's vital and real enough to have the capacity to withstand description that not just runs through different languages, but also through culture and through time. And I keep thinking about Nick's comment on placebo is what we don't yet understand about medicine. I keep wondering to myself why I like that phrase so much. And I think it comes down to that as much as I love getting answers, even more, I am drawn to and appreciate enlivening questions. Did you enjoy today's conversation? Was there something you caught that you want to share with your friends? Pop on over to create an Instagram reel and hashtag your acupuncture friends. And also, tag us over here at Geological as well. We love hearing about how these conversations deepen your understanding of our medicine. Also, you can check out some of the other conversations with Lisa Taylor Swanson here on Geological. There's episodes number 27 research methods for East Asian medicine practitioners. That was brought to you by LASA OMS. And number 127, tracking the void, nonlinear research methods. And that was brought to you by Real Mushrooms. If the dynamic nonlinear edge of research is your thing, you'll love these earlier conversations with Lisa. Well, friends, that winds it up for today. Do be sure to tune in again next Tuesday for another geological look into the practice of medicine. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.